Thank you for being here tonight. It's, uh, I think, wonderful when we have times where we can be in God's presence and, and hear from Him. I want to talk tonight on the topic of participating in God's promises. Participating in God's promises. A, a number of weeks ago, Pastor Louis was sharing in the morning service, and he made a statement which just stuck in my brain because it, it just helped me understand something better about the promises of God. He said the following thing, do we view God's promises as statements of blessing or as statements of purpose? Now, obviously, when God makes a promise, his intent is that we're blessed, but not only that we're blessed, that other people are blessed through us. So God's promises are always a blessing, but do we view them just as statements of blessing? In other words, do we kind of sit back and go, well, God, bring it on. Bless me. You've said it, now do it. Okay. Um, or is there actually more to it than that? And Pastor Louis headed in that direction, and, and that's what I want to explore a little bit more tonight, that God's promises are actually also statements of purpose that he invites us to participate in as well. And so we've also been in this place, and I think you guys had a significant service last week from what I heard, where we came and we surrendered things to God. We had a similar thing in the morning service last week as well. And so we come to this place of surrender, and like Udo shared and, and Pastor Gideon and others, that surrender isn't about abandoning things. Well, it's about giving up things often. But then it's not just, well, there, it's gone now. What do I do? Then there's a step we need to take. So we surrender from, but we also surrender to in that sense as well. Because we want to achieve what God has promised us in our lives. So I think I want to start by saying the following, that we must understand that God makes and keeps promises. God makes and keeps promises. The Bible is quite clear on that. And if you've been in our type of church, a charismatic type of church for any kind of while, you would have at least heard frequently about the promises of God. What I'm going to do tonight is look at some of the main theme promises of God, kind of like the headline stuff, the big things that God has promised throughout history so that we can get a bit of an understanding of what God means and, and kind of the big themes that all these other promises, even the promises he makes to us as individuals and as persons, where those promises fit in as well. So we're going to go through quite a number of verses. They will come up on the screen. If you really quick with your Bible drill or on your device, like, you know, super thumbs, um, you'll probably be able to keep up. But, you know, just take good reference, and, and I think you'll be fine as you'll go. So particularly, I want to start by looking at some of the promises that we find in the Older Testament, in the Old Testament. Now, most scholars or Bible students would agree that there's about eight main promises that God makes to us in the Old Testament. We're going to look at about five of them tonight, just really, really quickly, mainly because that suits my purposes, and that's what I have time for. Okay, so the other three are also real promises, are just they don't fit with what I'm doing tonight. Okay, so one of the first promises God makes is really early on in Scripture, and it's a promise of redemption. A promise, redemption means salvation. It's a promise of salvation. So what happens is Adam and Eve disobey God in the garden. They turn away. The serpent, the devil comes and he tempts them. They do what God has told them not to do. They sin. And what's really important for me is that we sang about the good father. The good father is right there as they've sinned, in the mess that they've caused. The, everything they did has set the course of human history on the wrong trajectory, the way God didn't want it to go, now it's going that way. And God's right there, and he provides clothes for them. He looks after their needs, even though they've just turned away from him because he's a good father. And then he makes this promise. He, he speaks out some judgment because this is now what's going to happen. 
It's like if your children are a little naughty. Now, Adam and Eve weren't quite children, but it's similar, okay? If your children are naughty, tell them, well, you've done this, so here's what's going to happen now. Okay, your t- children will love it. For those of you who haven't had children yet, it's like their favorite thing when you do that. Okay, as it was yours when your parents did it for you, I'm sure. But God speaks out judgment, and part of the judgment that he speaks out against the serpent, the devil, is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which is on the screen for you. So he's speaking to the devil, the serpent, and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, uh, whoever the, the people who would end up following the devil, and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, and this speaks of Jesus, will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. So right there at the beginning, God promises. Things have just turned in the wrong direction, but I promise you I'm going to fix it. I'm going to set things right. This is a promise of salvation. It's the first one in the whole Bible where God makes this promise of of redemption. He promises that a redeemer would come. Now, living this side of history, we know that that redeemer was Jesus. And Jesus came and on the cross, probably the devil struck his heel. But man, did he crash his head. Okay. So there's this promise of redemption. And the mission of God begins right there where he's going to fulfill this promise. He makes it and he's going to keep it. It starts in the garden. And if we read right towards the end of scripture in the book of Revelation, it ends in the city where God has restored and made everything right as he intended to be. So God kept his promise. Another very important promise we find in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 12, and it's a promise that God makes to Abraham. It's a very important promise because this promise becomes the basis on which the Apostle Paul builds actually all his theology that we read in books like Galatians and in books like Romans. It's a fundamental promise. What happens is Abraham's living in Ur of the Chaldees, seems God had drawn his father, promised his father, but they kind of got stuck there. And when Abram's 75 years old, anyone here 75? It's okay, you don't have to be shy. <laughs> okay, not. Um, but, but it's interesting, no matter how old you are, young or old, God makes this promise to Abram. And he basically, it works this way, he says, if you follow me, if you go to the land, I promise you, but basically leave everything you know, leave everything that's comfortable, leave everything that's familiar and that you understand, and follow me. And Abraham does this interesting thing. He says, because you said it, God, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to believe it. And God makes this promise to him. It's recorded for us in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3. He says, I will make you into a great nation, which becomes the nation of Israel, and I will bless you, which we, as we read Genesis, we see that God did that. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. If we read the stories in Genesis, we see that this is all true and fulfilled. I will bless those who bless you, and, I will cur- and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then this amazing phrase, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, if we look at just the history of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was blessed largely because of Abraham. But there's part of the promise where everybody, every ethnic group, the literal word here is ethnos, every ethnic group, every people group on earth, God wants to bless through Abraham, through the descendants Actually, it ends up being the one important descendant, Jesus, of Abraham. Because Jesus comes, and through him, this promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled. And there's opportunity for every nation on earth to be blessed. That blessing speaks of salvation. It speaks of being restored in relationship with God. So God keeps his promise. This is an important promise. God repeats it to Abraham a couple of times, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22 of Genesis. He even repeats it to Isaac and to Jacob later in history. It's that clear that God wanted the Redeemer to come through Abraham's descendants. 
So God makes a promise of redemption. He makes this promise that to Abraham, which, by the way, Abraham enacts by responding to God in faith. Faith here, we understand, is that when God says something, we believe that he will do it, and then we act accordingly. So basically, you believe that God will do what he said he would do, and then you act accordingly. That's a very clear biblical way to understand what faith is. There's another big promise that God makes, and this time not just to Abram, but to the nation of his descendants, to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. They've just come out of slavery in Egypt. They're essentially a nation of refugees. That's what we would call them today. And God's got to shape them and form them and build into them an identity of how he wants his people and people who follow him to live and interact and to behave in the world. And so shortly after they've come across the Red Sea, they gather at Mount Sinai, and in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, God makes this promise. He says to the nation of Israel, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. So out of the nations I will choose you to accomplish what I want on the earth. The whole earth is mine, but you, the nation of Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They'll represent God on the earth. And this, God then gives them the law of Moses to teach them how to be the people of God. But they have a role to play. And if you study the history of the Old Testament, that's effectively the story. Do they obey God? Do they obey this covenant? Do they walk in line with this promise that God made them or don't they? When they do, they're blessed and God fulfills his promises. When they don't, things don't go so well for them. But through this nation, through this line, God brings Jesus Christ to the earth. And so the Redeemer comes out of the nation of Israel because God kept his promise to Israel. Another promise we see two more from the Old Testament that we're going to look at tonight is a promise God made to King David. King David is probably the epitome of the rulers of Israel. He was probably fair to say the best king they had. He extended the kingdom, he established the nation, and he was a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us. He messed up, but he fixed it experienced the consequences of what he did wrong, but God blessed him. And because of the way that David responds to God and David's heart for God, God makes a promise to David. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. God speaks to David through the prophet, by the way, and he says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That means that someone of David's line would rule, would exercise a kingly authority. Now, if we look at David's descendants like Solomon and Jeroboam and uh, Rehoboam, I think, sorry, they, they didn't always do that great. Some of the kings of Israel followed God and some didn't. When they did well, it says they walked in the footsteps of their father David. When they don't, it says they ignored David. And so this promise that God made wasn't fulfilled naturally in the descendants of David. We know that the nation of Israel goes into exile, and when they come back for about mm, 300 and something years before Jesus is born, There isn't actually a descendant of David who rules over the nation until Jesus comes, who both through his father's line, Joseph, well, God's his father, but through Joseph's line, but his mother's line, Mary, he comes to be a descendant of David. And in Jesus Christ, this promise that God made to David that someone will rule, who is kind of your descendant, will rule forever, that's fulfilled in Jesus. This is where we talk about King Jesus. It's because of God's promise that he made here to David, because God keeps his promises. 
The last one is an important one for us. It's recorded in Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's a promise that God gives through the prophet of, prophet of Jeremiah where he promises what we call a new covenant. The people of Israel, the Old Testament time, they lived under what we call now the Old Covenant, the law of Moses. But already in that time, under that period, God says, I'm going to do things differently. And he speaks about what we call the new covenant. And Jeremiah describes it this way for us in chapter 31, verse 33 and 34. Jeremiah writes and he says, speaking on God's behalf, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. So it won't be like the law of Moses that's written on stone tablets that's external. I'll make it internal. I'll write it in their minds, put it in their minds and write it on their hearts. And in this fundamental promise, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, this is a promise God also repeats, and I don't have time to show you all the spaces, but God's intention from the Garden of Eden was always that he would be our God and we would be his people. Sin distorts that and kind of interrupts God's intention. And that's why he promises in Genesis that we looked at that he will restore it. The end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, it speaks about this picture of the end when God has come and there's the new heaven and a new earth. And it literally says, now the dwelling place of God is with man and he will be their God and they will be his people. That's how seriously God takes this part of the promise. Jeremiah carries on and he says, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one and know the Lord because they will know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And this is, comes into being, this is actualized in the life of Jesus. He comes and makes it possible that the Spirit of God lives in us. In other words, the laws of God are written in our hearts. The Spirit of God lives in us and that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus is the one who paid and made sure that God that God's promise here is fulfilled. This is the covenant that we live under that's explained to us and taught to us in the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the writings of the Apostles. This is the covenant that's fleshed out and that we learn to understand. Now, in these promises that we've looked at, one of the key things is that it always requires participation. When Jesus, when um, God promises in Genesis that the seed will come, one of Eve's descendants will come and he will crush the serpent's head. That was Jesus that came and he had to participate in fulfilling that promise by going to the cross. The night before he's crucified, he prays and he says, not my will, God, but your will. He's participating in the fulfillment of that promise. The promise to Abraham, the promise to the nation of Israel, the promise to David, this new covenant promise requires that we participate. Participation in the promises was required. And these promises are statements of God's purposes. This is what he wanted to do. I'd like to swing now quite a lot to the New Testament. Because as we prepare next week, particularly for Easter, that we look at some of the promises that are strongly linked to the death and resurrection of Easter. There's other promises in the Old Testament and New Testament. But let's look at some of the bigger themes that are linked to the crucifixion of Jesus. And I think, by the way, maybe it's a good point to say there won't be an evening service next week. You're welcome to come. Be a little quiet. Um, But we're all going to join in the morning service so that as a family we can celebrate together, just to to highlight that. I think it's been said in other places. But just like in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, linked with Easter, linked with the death of Jesus, there's also this promise of redemption. Actually, it's a fulfillment of this promise of redemption from Genesis. We can read 
One explanation of it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14. Galatians 3, 14. Speaks about God and he says he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abram, that promise that we read about Abram in Genesis 12, that that promise that all nations will be blessed. He redeemed us. He saved us so that the promise God made to Abram might come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish peoples of the earth through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So when we respond to God in faith, when we believe that he will do what he said he would do, and we align our lives with that, we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And in this context, it means salvation, that God's Spirit comes and lives in us when we give our lives to him. So Jesus comes as the Redeemer. He comes as the one who puts those promises of God into action. He redeems us from our sin and from the consequences of our sin where we've violated others and we've violated ourselves and we've not we violated the will and the purposes of God by living selfishly and living for ourselves. Jesus comes and he pays the price for that. And we have this promise that he will come and live in us. He'll write his laws on our hearts as it is indicated in Jeremiah in the New Covenant. And we need to participate in this promise. If you don't, you've got an awkward future. But when you accept the salvation, the redemption of Christ, we participate in this promise. What's the role we play? What's the active role we play in fulfilling this promise of God? When, they came, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, shortly after Jesus had risen into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, the people ask him the same question. They say, what must we do? How do we respond to this redemption, this salvation that God has made possible. Peter says it's quite simple, actually. You just need to repent and believe. Now, that's two words, but it takes a little bit. Repent means you decide to stop living for yourself by your own agendas, your own ways, and doing what you think is right. And you turn towards God and you say, well, how do you want me to live? How do I live according to what pleases you? How do I stay in this place of relationship with you? You change your mind about living for yourself. The word literally means change your mind. Change your mind about how you live for yourself, and you change your mind that you're going to live for, for God. And believe that God will do what he said he would do. In this context, that he will forgive your sins. I'm really glad that God made this promise that he would forgive my sins. I've been serving Jesus for a while. The longer I'm serving, the happier I am that he's doing it, that he forgives my sins. Gideon keeps quoting stuff I said to him in the 1990s like I'm supposed to remember it. But maybe in like, what's it now, 20 years. Um, okay. You'll be really glad that Jesus forgives your sins. A very similar promise to this promise of redemption is a promise of reconciliation. A promise that God gives of reconciliation. Now, part of reconciliation is the same as redemption um, in that it's about being saved from but it brings in this other idea. But let's read the scripture first. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18 is a promise of reconciliation. All this, the salvation, everything that is done is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation too. And so through Jesus, God not only redeems us, but he reconciles us to God. This idea that I will be their God and they will be my people, Jesus comes and makes that possible again. For me, reconciliation speaks also of this relational element. Not only does God forgive my sins, he wants to be reconciled, me to him. That I can be back in relationship with him, 
just like he intended in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, that he would be my God and I would be his boy. Okay? That's God's plan. Reconciliation means, what, Stephen, am I like way too corny for you? <laughs> okay. I made Stephen bend over with laughter. It's like a moment. Okay. God's purpose is that we are reconciled to him, and Jesus makes us possible. I can have relationship with God again because of what Jesus has done. God promise it, promises it and makes it possible. But I think you also note in this verse that Jesus, it also says that he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. We participate in this promise of God, not only when we step back into relationship with him and we build our relationship with him when we get to know him, but also when we become agents of reconciliation, where we help others come back into relationship with God. And probably broader than that, where we start making things work according to God's plan and God's way. So we participate in the promise of reconciliation when we pursue relationship with God, where we work out what it means to be his son and his, his daughter, but also when we become agents and we help him reconcile not only people, but there's other scriptures in Colossians which says all things, and we'll look at that shortly in terms of restoration. Another big promise that God makes is the promise of eternal life. So when he redeems us, he reconciles us into relationship with us, and then he tells us, I'll let you live forever too. It's a good deal. Okay? 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. 1 John chapter 2, 25. I said I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures because I want you to know that what I'm saying is just beyond my own ideas. John just simply states it like this in his simple fashion. He says, and this is what God promised us, eternal life. Okay, this is what God promised us, eternal life. If I respond to him in faith, if I repent and I believe and I'm reconciled to him, Jesus does all this, I just have to step in and participate in what Jesus has made available to me. Then God says, you will live forever. You will live forever. Do you understand that you will live forever? How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? Why do you watch such things? No. I've watched it, okay. But the, the lead character in the movie at this stage makes this statement. It sounds really cool. He says, what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Probably expressing a Greco-Roman view of eternity. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. And it's probably true, but I think it's a lot more pointed than that. I think the choices you make in this life determine your eternity. Is it in eternity with God or without God? Eternity without God, we've got a really cool word for that, hell. That's not God's intention. That's not God's promise. He says, I want you to have eternal life. But to get it, you have to do it God's way. You have to accept forgiveness of your sins. You have to turn to him and you have to be reconciled. So we have a role to play in working out this eternal life. There's another aspect to it. If you've been serving God for a while, this is an important aspect to remember. You have to remember that this life isn't all there is. We don't only live for this life. In fact, if we read a lot of else, what, what Paul, the Apostle Paul says, he, he, a lot of his ethic, a lot of the way he, want, he expects us to live is governed by this principle that our future reality determines our present conduct. Our future reality, our eternal life, the fact that we will live with God in heaven forever should have an effect on how I live now. You see, if I'm 
living in a situation where there's a, I've got a difficult boss or there's someone that's mean to me, if, if my only perspective is now, then I get even and I get my best and I stand up for myself. But if I know I'm going to live forever, then I forgive. Because that's what my Father in heaven wants me to do. If I know I'm going to live forever, it changes how I respond in the moment. If it's just about getting ahead in this life, I live in a certain way. But if it's about living with God forever, it changes my priorities. Then relationship with God becomes more important. I don't know everything that we'll do in heaven one day. I don't know everything that we'll do in eternal life. But I know one thing is that we'll be in relationship with him. So you better get used to it. It's not going away. So God promises us eternal life. There's a couple of other promises I'd like us to look at because they're also important promises for us. There's a promise that God makes of restoration. When Jesus dies on the cross, not only does he save us from our sins, he makes it possible for things to be restored. In other words, set back to like they should be. That's what restoration means, to be set back to like they should be. And I want to look at three kind of groups of restoration, if that's okay. The one area which is probably quite obvious is that part of the promise of restoration is in the area of healing, that God promises us healing. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, Peter quotes from Isaiah, prophet Isaiah, but I'll read what Peter said. He said, speaking of Jesus, he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took our sins on him to pay the price. So that, why did he do that? So that we might die to sins. In other words, stop sinning. Okay? So we might die to sins and live for righteousness. If you live for righteousness, the sin stuff will stop and sort itself out. And then Peter says these words. He says, by his wounds we are healed. Both physically, the promise of restoration becomes possible. Now, we don't always see that in this life because one day when we're in heaven, we will be completely restored. But heaven starts breaking through when we lay our hands on the sick and we pray for them. But this also means restoration, healing emotionally as well. It makes provision for that. That because Jesus died for you, you can be restored. And that's why in the church we believe in praying for the sick. How do you participate in this promise of God? Trust him to heal you. If I look at some of the things that doctors do today, it's a miracle. I think it's God working through people. The things we can cure today is miraculous. So the, if you look at even the time of Jesus, if you told them you can take a pill and it would make you better, they would go, miracle. And we go, yeah. Okay. So, so that's part of it. But there's also a supernatural part of it where beyond what doctors can do sometimes, God comes and heaven breaks through. I've experienced that where people have prayed for me and it, like a torn hamstring, like torn. I know what torn. I was an athlete at school. Torn. Then the next day I can dance again. Yes, I can dance, Stephen. Okay. Because my hamstring is restored. God healed it. Supernaturally. Not six weeks recovery and physio. Next day fixed. Okay. Healing is part of God's plan of restoration. So how do we participate in that? By praying for the sick when we can. We lay on hands and we pray for the sick. We trust God to heal us as well. And sometimes, particularly more in the area of our soul, mind, will, and emotions, there's a process in healing that's involved as well, particularly if we've experienced trauma if we've been hurt. We need to allow God into those spaces so that we can be restored. 
Another area where God promises uh, restoration is in our persons, in ourselves. The scripture in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter writes and he says this, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, to eternal life, which we've spoken about, after you have suffered a little while, which he means like this life. You know that if you believe in Jesus, this life is as tough as it's going to get. If you don't believe in Jesus, this life is as good as it's going to get. Okay. But after you've suffered a little while, Peter says, God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's the way the NIV translates it. Strong, firm, and steadfast. So I know that Peter's writing and he's pointing to a little bit to heaven. But isn't this a promise that we can think of for ourselves? God, won't you make me strong when I'm weak? Won't you help me stand firm when I get all wobbly? And won't you help me to be steadfast in my life? And perhaps tonight, for some of you, this promise is real. That you need God to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And we have a role to play in that. Is there an area in, this, in your life where you need to become strong, firm, and steadfast? Be intentional about it. Make work of it. Respond to what God is doing. Do the processes you need to do. Some people talk about soul work. Do the soul work you need to do so that you can be restored in your person. And you can become more of the person that God wanted you to be. There is a promise which will work out itself more and more fully, but will only fully come to pass when Jesus comes back. It's a promise of restoration of all things. Promise of restoration of all things. Uh, In Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus has just left. He's gone to heaven. And Luke writes for us and he says, Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. God has promised that all of creation will be restored. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it didn't just affect the human condition. It didn't just affect us and make us sinful. The whole world, all of creation as we understand, know and see and experience today, the whole universe was affected by it. And there's a promise here that God wants to restore all things. Some of you, in the work you will do now and one day in the future if you're studying, in your professions, in your workplace, there's a promise that God wants to use you to restore things to how he wants them. So sometimes we speak about a biblical worldview. What's God's biblical view of your profession, of the area where you work and the area where you engaged? And can God use you there? Can you participate with God in his promise, in engineering and in medicine and in teaching and in cleaning and in studying? Can you participate in God's promises to set all things right, to restore them to as they should be? Two more promises we want to look at and then we'll wrap up. And these promises are linked. We've spoken a lot about what the death of Jesus has accomplished. But there's two promises I want to highlight that are linked to the resurrection of Jesus, which we also celebrate in this Easter. The first one is the resurrection as a promise of new life. A promise of new life. In Romans chapter 6, the first few verses there, Paul talks about baptism. Believers' baptism, where we go under the water, we're immersed, and that becomes a symbol of dying with Christ, and we come out of the water, and that's a symbol of being raised to new life. Romans 6 verse 4 speaks to this, and it says it this way. We therefore are buried with him, excuse me, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
So Christianity isn't just about being redeemed and reconciled. It's about rising, literally, to live a new life. God promises that he's got a better life for you. That's what the new life means in this place. And the way we participate in this promise is partly by being baptized and understanding what we're doing. But it also means we're living, leaving our old lives behind. You cannot live your new life if you keep trying to participate in the old. In your old ways of doing things, your old habits, your old patterns, your old ways of thinking. Jesus rose from the dead so that you can live a new life. The new life is always better than the old life. Another promise linked to the resurrection is the promise of a living hope. Talking about a lot of promises, I understand that. It's a, promises of a, a promise of a living hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter writes and he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. Because that's true, it's great mercy. He has given us new birth, he's given us new life into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then death is not final. Jesus rose from the dead, I will one day die, but it will be like sleeping and waking up for me. Because Jesus rose from the dead, I too will rise from the dead. And that is real hope, that one day I will really live with him in heaven. And so how do I participate in this promise? I know that there's always hope. Not just short-lived hope, there's a living hope that as I live and pursue Jesus, this hope grows and lives with me. One day when you get a little bit older, one of the promises that becomes real is you're going to get a new body. You know your body is so important to God, he's going to give you a new one? He will. It's not just your spirit and your soul that are important to God. There's real hope that you will have a new body and a new life that comes with it. So there's always hope. And we need to be bringers of hope to people. When they say, I just can't anymore, I tell them, but remember, there will be a better life. This little life is... A little bit of suffering, 100, 120 years of suffering. What's that? <clears throat> it's the average life expectancy, you guys can, okay. In comparison to eternity, is it real? Is it difficult? Yes. Do I need hope to cope? Yes, I do. But I have hope because there's always hope that God will come and set things right. So when we surrender, like many of you did last week to God, we surrender to the promises of God. We adopt this posture in our hearts that, God, I want your promises. But surrender means also that we begin to participate in God's promises. And so God invites us to participate in his promise of redemption, his promise of reconciliation, and his promise of eternal life. And if you've never said, God, I want to be saved, I want to be in relationship with you, I want to have eternal life, there'll be some of the leaders up front here at the end of the service. Why don't you come and just say, I need to engage in this promise of God. I need to see, will God do this in my life? And all of the Bible tells us that God makes his promises and he keeps his promise. If he says to me and to you, I'll forgive your sin, we know that he did that in the life of Jesus Christ. But God's also inviting us tonight to participate in promises of restoration, of healing, restoration of our persons, and the restoration of all things. He's asking us to participate in this new life through the resurrection of Christ that's available to us. Live a new life. You don't have to live the life you've always lived. And he invites us to participate in the living hope. There's always hope. So in closing, 
I'm reminded of Mary, Jesus' mother, where the angel Gabriel comes to him, and he makes a significant promise. <laughs> you are going to give birth to the Son of God. Now, she's, as we would understand it, she's probably still a teenager at this time. They were much more mature, I think. Okay. But she's a teenager. An angel appears to her, and she says, you're going to become the mother of the Son of God. In other words, all the Old Testament prophecies that God made, he's going to fulfill through you. Talk about pressure. But Mary's response is phenomenal. The words are famous. She says, may it be according to me, may it be to me according to what you have said. May it be to me according to what you have said. She's surrendering to the promise of God. So that's important. We need to know that she's saying, well, God, this is what you said. I surrender. You've made this promise in my life, whether it's these big theme promises that I've spent some time talking about tonight, if it's a personal promise that God's given you, no matter how personal or, or, or what it is, or a promise of a calling or a promise of a blessing, what we need to say in our hearts is, well, Lord, I receive that. May it be to me according to what you have said. But may it be to me according to what you have said also speaks of participation. Without being too graphic, we do understand Mary had to participate in this promise. Nine months long, at least. But then she had to raise Jesus. She had to watch us. It says, we, it's clear for us in the Gospels that she followed him. She knew his teaching. She saw what he taught. First miracle Jesus does is at a wedding in Cana. They run out of wine. I think you know the story. And so his mom says, speak to my son and do whatever he tells you, because that's what moms do. <laughs> and, and then in, in scripture language, Jesus says to a woman, which is a little impolite, okay, because she's speaking to his mom, but he's, she's obviously annoyed him a little. Okay. <laughs> Yet he was without sin, so it was, just, it was within the boundary. Okay. But she says to a woman, it's not my time. Why are you making me do this? In today's language, you would have gone, ah, mom. <laughs> okay. But then he does his first miracle. He makes provision for people. He changes water into wine. Because his mother understood. She was participating in the promise of God. She knew who he was and what he would become. <laughs> she participates and she stands at the cross and she sees her son dying. And she becomes a believer. She becomes a follower of him, church history tells us. And so in our hearts, can we also say, be it unto me according to your will. I'm not only surrendering to the promises of God, I want to take my step. I want to have a front, forward-leaning posture, as Udo shared. We need to actively participate in what God promises us. If I have a fatalistic view of the world, I go, well, this promise is a blessing. God, bring it on. Whatever happens will happen. But I don't know if that's a completely biblical view. I think God invites us to anticipate to participate in his promises. I think God's promises are also statements of purpose. So when God comes and he makes a promise to you, it's a statement of purpose. And then you're invited to participate with God in doing that. We're not talking about self-sufficiency. This isn't you pulling yourself up by your own shoelaces. This isn't you out of your own strength and effort trying to do what you think God has done. In fact, any kind of experience, anyone who's walked with Jesus for a while will tell you that when you think God's promise looks like this and you try and work it out yourself, you work with him. That promise of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. So God, you've made this promise for my life. I'm going to be this or this is going to happen or he's going to be tall, dark and handsome, whatever the promise is. 
okay? Well, God, what's my next step? What, how do I participate you? And help me by your spirit to do that. This is not human effort we're talking about. This is about walking in that reconciled relationship with God, step by step, and doing what he's called us to do. So I want to be very clear. This is not about God's made a promise and now it's all on you. God will make his promise come true, but you work with him. You participate with him. And then the deal is he gives you his spirit to empower you to get it right as well. It's a good deal, if I may use such language. So is there a promise from God that you need to actively participate in, that God is speaking to you tonight about, that you need to participate? Can I invite you to, to stand and I want to pray a prayer, and then with that we'll, we'll end the, the service. Father, we want to pause and acknowledge that every promise you have made, you have kept. In this great scheme of things, in terms of salvation, redemption, reconciliation, restoration, resurrection, you've kept your promise. The history bears us out, and that's why we know we can trust you. And Lord, sometimes we get tired of standing and trusting you for your promises. And for those in the room tonight who they've been holding on to your promise, and it just it's not happening. Lord, I pray by your spirit you give them the tenacity to continue, the tenacity to hold on and to say, if it takes me the rest of my life, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to build my relationship and I'm going to hold on to this promise and do what you've asked me to do. And then, Lord, for others in the room, I want to pray that perhaps we've been too passive in considering your promises. Maybe you've promised us financial blessing. Maybe you've promised us a job. Won't you forgive us where we haven't participated as we ought to have? Maybe there's something we've surrendered and, or not surrendered. Lord, I pray for a special grace for us tonight to surrender and to have the courage to then step and do what you're asking us to do. Lord, you're at Hatfield. You've said you've called us to bring God's kingdom in hearts and in homes and beyond. And so, Lord, I know you've spoken promises to some of us for our hearts. Show us how to participate in those promises. Lord, for some of us, you've given promises for our homes and our families and our immediate circle of relationships. God, won't you fulfill them? And as you want us to help and to, to be agents and participators in that, won't you help us to do that? But Lord, I also know in this room there's some who have promises for beyond, for communities and for social justice and just to change the world a little bit and make it more like the kingdom of God and what you've dreamed and you've always intended. Won't you give us the power by your spirit to step into those promises too? Thank you as Easter comes that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you invite us to participate in your promises. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for that opportunity. Help us to respond in a way that honors you, in a way that loves you, loves you back because you've loved us first. So I pray for each one, Father, that you give them the courage to step again. Where some have lost hope, you give them hope again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here tonight. See you next Sunday morning.
And Friday morning too, if you can, it will be wonderful to have you there. If you need some prayer, there will be some leaders here in front to pray with you. You're welcome to come and we can participate with God in some of those promises as well. Thank you.